Hello, and welcome to the Cato Institute's event today on U.S.-China relations after the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Eric Gomez. I am the Director of Defense Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and I will be today's moderator for the event. As I'm sure many of you watching are aware, uh, U.S.-China relations are in a very, very bad spot right now. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, there was considerable support building in the United States for a more uh, com competitive or confrontational approach to U.S.-China relations due to Chinese activities in Hong Kong, uh, the Uyghur concentration camp issue in Xinjiang, um, and other longstanding problems in the U.S.-China relationship. The COVID-19 pandemic and America's response to it has only accelerated these trends with many now calling for China to pay reparations of some sort or pay some kind of punishment for letting the virus get out of hand and devastating not only the U.S. economy and population, but also affecting the rest of the world. Recently, uh, a national security law that the Chinese government has implemented for Hong Kong uh, has also stirred up a lot of controversy with uh, Mike, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo only minutes ago saying that Hong Kong uh, will no longer be certified as having autonomy by the United States. Uh, we certainly have a lot to cover today. Due to that, this, for, this event is going to be slightly different uh, from other Cato Institute events that we've done recently. It's going to be much more question and answer focused given how much time we have and how many topics we have to cover. So instead of having each of the speakers present for about 10 minutes or so each, I'm just going to dive right into questions for them and then start taking questions from the audience. You can send your questions either via social media using the hashtag CatoFP, or you can submit them here on the website through the Slido box uh, to the right of your screen. Um, and I will uh, answer the, or ask the questions to the participants. Today, we have three distinguished guests to talk with us through some of these issues. Uh, Michael Swain is a senior associate at the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Bonnie Glazer is a senior advisor and director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies. And Doug Bando is my colleague at the Cato Institute, and he is a senior fellow. Um, so given the recent news on Hong Kong, I think we're just going to dive right into that. Um, and Doug, you can uh, start us off by responding to this question. Um, given how China has handled its administration of Hong Kong in recent years, what are some of the implications for both China's international politics and its domestic <laughs> politics? Uh, specifically, how is the national security law in China's apparent disregard for the one country, two systems model going to affect how the world deals with it or sees the intentions of the Chinese Communist Party? Well, this isn't just any law. This is a law which basically will allow the PRC to treat protest, democracy, activism, those kinds of activities as seditious, as treason, and it's going to be combined with the placement of Chinese security forces in Hong Kong, which presumably will allow Hong Kong residents to be taken to China for trial. It really is an extraordinary reach that goes well beyond other behaviors themselves were bad. The kidnapping of publishers, the interference with elections, disqualification of candidates. This is a much more significant reach. And it clearly shows that the PRC is not going to accept what they view as chaos in Hong Kong. And they are going to implement measures that they are convinced will stamp out the protests. And that clearly is what they are after here. It's very hard to see how you can call Hong Kong autonomous after this. It may retain commercial law. But areas even like that uh, in mainland China, of course, you can get prosecuted for releasing economic data and things. This is a major step forward. It's going to be very hard for the United States not to refuse to certify. And if the U.S. doesn't certify Hong Kong as being autonomous, then it's going to fall under normal trade law applied to the PRC. And you're going to see a very different investment climate. 
And I suspect that action by the U.S. would also have kind of a, a moral, a morale impact on international business. You're likely to see an exodus. It's going to transform Hong Kong from being this free financial center into essentially being an appendage of the PRC, pretty much under PRC authority. So it's going to set uh, us on another confrontation that's going to be damaging to both sides. Uh, it's a very unfortunate step. It's been long in coming, I'm afraid. We're seeing the end of the two uh, systems uh, well before the 50 years that China promised back in 1997. So I think that uh, Doug has definitely outlined clearly what the worst case is, and we may <laughs> see that worst case uh, emerge. Uh, but just to explain process a little bit, uh, tomorrow I understand that the National People's Congress will essentially approve in principle uh, that they will uh, draft uh, a law. That drafting hasn't begun yet. And that, uh, that law is supposed to be passed by the end of the summer and be in place before the elections uh, in September in Hong Kong. So if there is potential, and we can talk about whether there is, uh, to influence how China is going to implement uh, the law, now is the time to do that over the next uh, few months. And it sounds to me like the United States has gone in with what I would call the nuclear option uh, of uh, removing uh, Hong Kong's special, uh, special status. Uh, under the 1992 Hong Kong Policy Act, Hong Kong uh, was determined uh, to have full autonomy. Uh, of course, this was uh, under the one country, two systems and uh, given special uh, preferential trading status. So for example, the tariffs that Washington has imposed on China don't apply uh, to Hong Kong. Uh, members of uh, citizens of Hong Kong who have passports can more easily get visas and travel to the United States than those who live in mainland China. So that's two examples of uh, some things that will go away uh, that uh, Hong Kong uh, exporters, we don't import a great deal, of course, from Hong Kong, but the exporters will now be subject uh, to U.S. tariffs and Hong Kong citizens will have more difficulty traveling. But more importantly, uh, Hong Kong's role as an international financial hub um, is likely to be called into question. We may see a mass exodus uh, of capital, of businesses, uh, and uh, expats, and people who have the means, even Hong Kongers, uh, to, uh, to emigrate. Uh, and, and, and so the future for Hong Kong looks, ra looks rather bleak to me, and I would agree with Doug. I could just add a word. I, I basically agree with what's been said thus far. Um, but I, I think the U.S. action, if it indeed is going to uh, state now that Hong Kong is no longer to be regarded at all as a separate entity and treated just the same as the United States treats mainland China on the trade front and everything else, uh, this is certainly not going to help Hong Kong. Uh, it's unlikely to change the policy of the Chinese government. Um, it feels good to make this a gesture, but I don't really going to do much. As Bonnie's just suggested, do much on the good side. As Bonnie's just suggested, it could have very significant negative implications for Hong Kong itself. Um, I think that the United States really, uh, I don't know if this is even possible now, but the issue of implementation of the national security law is an important one. And the process is by no means completed, as Bonnie just suggested. There are ways in which you might exert some influence on how this law is implemented within the Hong Kong system, within the Hong Kong structure. Uh, whether or not Hong Kong processes, Hong Kong legal process uh, is adhered to in trying to implement the law is an important question. Uh, if Beijing just assumes that this is a, a law that is going to give it carte blanche to operate in Hong Kong as it wishes in defining and arresting and prosecuting uh, whom they believe are threats to Hong Kong or mainland security, then of course this is going to spell very, very serious consequences for Hong Kong and have further negative effects on U.S. relations with China. But I don't think we should begin by assuming all of that is already now in train, it's all gonna happen. 
and um, we're going to face that kind of situation. It would be good if the NPC could put on hold this legislation and say, say that it would be implemented within a certain period of time, uh, giving the Hong Kong government perhaps an opportunity to be able to take on again this effort to try and get it passed in a way that would be more acceptable to Hong Kong. But what the U.S. action has done, it seems to me, serves more to force Beijing's hand than it does to try to look for some other somewhat more less extreme option in dealing with this situation. Great. Um, to ask a bit of a follow-up on the Hong Kong issue, and Bonnie, uh, you can start us off on this, but one of the deals that the mainland government sort of made with Hong Kong was the one country, two systems model, right? That Hong Kong would be a part of China, but would have a significant degree of political autonomy. Um, this has also been an important part of PRC messaging about Taiwan, where that was one of the models that the mainland was sort of proposing for uh, the Taiwanese. How does China's recent actions toward Hong Kong um, affect this one country, two systems idea, and how might the Taiwanese domestic system uh, react to these recent developments? Well, the one country, two systems model uh, was developed for Taiwan, but first implemented in Hong Kong. Uh, the Chinese, I think, have always envisioned that one country, two systems would be different in Taiwan. Uh, there have been times where uh, the Chinese government and pa Communist Party have even articulated some of the ways uh, that it that it would be different. Uh, years ago, the Chinese used to say that uh, Taiwan would be able uh, to uh, keep its own uh, military forces. Um, they don't say that any longer, by the way. Uh, but this was something that was always going to be left to negotiations between Taiwan and mainland China, the details of one country, two systems. And indeed, in January 2019, when Xi Jinping gave his first very comprehensive speech uh, about Taiwan and China's policy toward Taiwan, uh, he, he talked about uh, one country, two systems. And this was used at the time very effectively by Taiwan's president uh, Tsai Ing-wen to build votes uh, for her re-election. The, the protests in Hong Kong really attracted a lot of, of attention in Taiwan, uh, probably much more than it ever had, uh, because people in Taiwan have really never supported one country, two systems. Uh, all polls have showed for years that ta uh, Taiwanese had no interest in, in supporting. Uh, the application of one country, two systems. Uh, so uh, ultimately, this confirms their belief that Taiwan should remain separate, uh, as autonomous as possible, uh, but not seek necessarily uh, de jure independence um, or even make clear that it will be permanent de facto independence because they, the Taiwanese are smart. They don't want to provoke an attack from China. Uh, so they would like to retain the system that they have and basically kick the can down the road. There are radicals in Taiwan who would like to see uh, a more sort of legal uh, sense of uh, implementation of independence. Uh, but Taiwan's current president is not going to support that. Uh, it, she, Tsai Ing-wen wants to preserve her definition, of course, of the status quo uh, across the strait. Um, and is working quite closely with the United States in order uh, to strengthen uh, Taiwan's autonomy. Uh, this is irritating Beijing. And the dynamic, therefore, uh, between these, these three sides, Taiwan, uh, mainland China, and the United States, um, is, is, has, has really changed significantly from the past <laughs> and is important to watch going forward. I think that China's willingness to crack down on Hong Kong suggests that they may have given up on the notion that there is a popular willingness in Taiwan for this kind of accommodation. If you look at the polls, I mean, generally Taiwanese do not view themselves as Chinese who should be subject to Beijing. And the numbers for the younger generation are simply off the charts. And you know, given the latest election returns, Beijing might have decided that that option effectively is off the table 
whatever they might verbalize, in which case they are free to do what they want in Hong Kong, subject to a concern, I think, over maintaining its financial status. But otherwise, the view is that Taiwan is not going to be enticed by that model anyway. It's been rebuffed by what's been going on in Hong Kong in recent years. So I think this in many ways is a very bad sign in terms of what may be happening in the future for Chinese-Taiwanese relations. All right. Uh, excellent. Um, thank you for those responses. I have, uh, I'm going to turn now to some of the audience uh, Q&A questions. Um, <laughs> there's a lot coming in. Uh, so I might, what I might do is instead of uh, trying to address a bunch of individual questions, I might try to just uh, draw a common thread through um, several to try and get more, more issues answered. Um, so one that came in or, or something that came in uh, that touches on on the reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Paul Lindhorst uh, was one of the folks who asked about this, uh, as in addition to a couple people, a couple other people on Slido. But um, in terms of how China reacted to the COVID-19 pandemic, and this is something that several voices in the United States have raised with talk of maybe a connection to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, there seems to be a lot of focus right now on trying to uh, retroactively pick apart how China handled the pandemic and how the U.S. is handling the pandemic. And there seems to be an effort to try and assign uh, blame or responsibility to different parties based off of how they reacted. Um, for Michael, uh, could you talk a bit about this in terms of the domestic Chinese reaction and what has the pandemic done within China to Xi Jinping's level of either control or um, or legitimacy within China, how is it affecting some of the discussions we're likely to see in Chinese domestic politics about how to move forward? Well, sure. Thanks, Eric. Well, I think COVID-19 really brought to light the strengths and the weaknesses of the Chinese domestic medical and political communities in responding to a major pandemic, a major domestic crisis like this, it showed that local politicians and health authorities and doctors had conflicting priorities with the former prizing bureaucratic procedures or, or uh, uh, regulations, rigid controls over information, the defense of the correctness of the government, and perhaps fear of conveying bad news outward and upward, especially during both a major holiday spring festival with masses of Chinese looking forward to visiting their relatives in early February and with the existence of people's congresses in Wuhan and in Hubei in early mid-January. Now, although a system existed for the rapid transmission of information on a new pathogen up the scientific chain, it was not used in time for as yet unknown reasons and local officials were apparently hesitant to accurately report on the movement of the virus in early to mid-January. Diagnostic criteria and reporting requirements were overly strict, and they also punished local doctors for reporting out of channels without authorization or solid facts, which although perhaps understandable, nonetheless greatly angered the public, especially after the experience of the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. Now, on the other hand, once the central authorities became fully aware of the nature of the virus, as far as we can tell, they moved quickly in a pre-planned manner to mobilize the extensive resources of the government to shut down Wuhan, punish local officials, contact global health authorities, examine the virus and prevent its spread. Some precious time was lost in the early stages for a variety of reasons, not all of which we totally understand but the sometimes draconian methods that China used undoubtedly saved many lives. Now, how fast the virus would have spread within and outside China if local authorities had allowed quicker reporting up the chain and Beijing had intervened and acted sooner to break the logjam, and if the CCP regime in general did not prize the control of information so much is simply not known. But given the characteristics of the virus, in my view, it's almost a certainty that it would have spread rapidly outside China under even the best of conditions. And this is especially possible indeed if China had in fact limited the spread more, thus making the virus seem less threatening to other countries. 
many of whom took a slow response in any event, including the United States. Now, whether this whole episode has had a serious lasting negative effect on the CCP leadership and Xi Jinping, I think is unclear at this point. There are no signs that the handling of the virus produced rifts within the leadership. Xi Jinping let Premier Li Keqiang lead the substantive response to the virus while he performed as a symbol of national leadership and overall supervision. Now, there's some evidence that she was not really aware of and certainly not in control, direct control of the response prior to about January 23rd. And the central regime, of course, only punished local for malfeasance while praising the expert leadership of the CCP. While some might think this limited punishment would just anger ordinary Chinese, in fact, I think many Chinese tended to blame their local officials in general and exonerate Beijing. But the jury's still out, I think, to what extent the virus will impact China's domestic politics, because the full effect on the economy has yet to be felt. And there could be a return to the virus in the fall. Even then, however, I would not predict a systemic political crisis for the PRC regime or for Xi Jinping himself, especially if the US attacks on China continue to give the regime much ammunition to hype the threat posed by the US in order to strengthen support for the PRC regime. And of course, if the US continues to perform so poorly in combating the, the virus itself. I mean, right, I'm willing right. to say um, something about the international impact beyond that, if you want, but maybe oh, yeah, other people ahead. want to add. Well, on the international impact, I think COVID-19 um, has clearly served to worsen Sino-US relations in a major way, <laughs> as each side has engaged in these sort of pathetic charges and counter charges of who is to blame and which system is best ordered to deal with such a threat in what really amounts to a race to the bottom. Uh, this has in my view, undermine the capacity of the entire international system to coordinate, to combat the virus and strengthen the global economy. In this effort, both sides have resorted to crude, ham-handed propaganda and various actions to tout their superiorities and the evils of the other side. Beijing has provided massive amounts of aid to various countries and apparently encouraged or pressured recipients to sing its praises. Some assistance is greatly appreciated, but some of the supplies have been defective and there are some signs of corruption. And Beijing is often contrasting its generosity and ability to reach outward while the US still struggles with its chaotic domestic situation and stumbles to provide assistance and development of, of different types of materials. Some think that on balance that Beijing has gained at the expense of the US by showing the effectiveness of its authoritarian domestic control efforts while criticizing the chaos of the democratic and decentralized US response. But this neglects the success of democratic Asian places like South Korea and Taiwan in combating the virus while downplaying the negative impact of Beijing's simplistic propaganda and praise for its system. So on balance, I don't think either nation has gained from this sordid game done primarily for political purposes. They could have both gained to some degree largely, to some large degree, if they had cooperated to take the lead in developing a collaborative global vaccine, a global effort for a vaccine and to produce more testing and tracing. But of course, they're not doing that. So I, I'll just jump in and quickly add a couple of points. You know, I, I mostly agree with what Michael has said regarding the uh, international situation. Uh, but I think that um, uh, even though we don't know the long-term impact yet, it seems to me that uh, some of China's behavior, particularly in the area of the war, what's being called wolf warrior diplomacy and um, uh, disinformation, has really gotten the attention of a lot of countries around the world. Uh, there was one case in which uh, the uh, Chinese uh, a Chinese official said that uh, the French government had been uh, uh, ignoring the uh, condition of some of its citizens in nursing homes and letting them die. Uh, uh, the, the, the French were livid, um, understandably so. Uh, Michael referred mm -hmm. to the fact that the Chinese have been interfering 
in uh, the responses of governments, both local and national governments, trying to demand uh, statements of gratitude to, to Beijing because of the assistance that China has given. We saw this in the case of Wisconsin, where uh, the Chinese consulate actually reached out uh, to the governor's office with a draft uh, of, of what a resolution would look like, thanking uh, China. And, and there are really many examples. Um, uh, China's now putting uh, tariffs on Australia in retaliation for the fact that Australia has been uh, pressing for an investigation into uh, responses and origins of, of COVID-19. So I think a lot of countries are are asking uh, questions and re-asking questions that maybe they thought they had answered earlier, like the UK and Germany taking another look at whether uh, they could allow uh, Huawei, ZTE, and other companies in the telecom area into their uh, networks, even in limited ways, which uh, some of those decisions uh, had uh, had been made previously. So, you know, there, the, this epidemic has brought out the worst that I have seen in Chinese foreign policy, from my perspective. I hope that the Chinese conclude uh, that the way they're dealing with the rest of the world, even if it helps them, uh, to rally the Chinese people in support of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that maybe that's good for them domestically, but they, are, they will pay eventually uh, a large international price for that. And so I hope that they conclude that uh, the kind of way that they have been talking about the world and dealing with the world um, is, is, is really not a, a good way to advance uh, China's reputation or soft power. I will not say anything about the United States. We're not doing things well at all, but it, that just goes without saying. Our focus today is on China. <laughs> for for the next question, uh, I'm going to group again. I'm going to group a few more that have been on a sort of common theme. Um, so David Hurwitz and Patrick Dickey have both submitted questions that get at the U.S. decision. Uh, during the Nixon administration to reach out to China. There's been a lot of discussion among experts over, was that a smart thing to do, uh, sort of relitigating that decision of, should we have had this policy of engagement? Questions of, are we returning to some sort of Cold War type model of relations in the US-China relationship? Um, I, I think for the speakers, I'd love to get your thoughts on what do you think about this sort of new Cold War rhetoric and the wisdom of engagement uh, back in the Nixon years? Um, if you could sort of weigh in on where you see things going from here uh, and if that kind of model of a Cold War will become more popular within the United States government as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll start with Doug. I think that there are two levels of engagement. The, you know, the 1972 decision was high geopolitics, especially to deal with the Soviet Union. That made sense in terms of the real Cold War against a militarily confrontational adversary. Uh, the issue that more people point to is the question of bringing China economically into the international system, especially WTO membership. Certainly some of us, I think, and I'd put myself among them, were probably a little too optimistic about the transformation that was likely in terms of moving towards markets. But I think we still want to look and see what China you know, is today versus what it was in 1976 when Mao Zedong died. That China is a very, very different place and a much better place in terms of personal autonomy, in terms of you know, the, the, a real reduction in poverty among the most poor, which I think is a good thing that this is a society that looks very different. And I think that engagement played a very important role. Even 10 years ago, it was an authoritarian system, but there was a lot more looseness to it in terms of NGOs and academic exchanges that could occur without central government authority, independent journalists who could report on local corruption. You know, Xi Jinping has transformed this system. And it's important to realize the future is not set, that Xi Jinping is not necessarily what uh, the long-term future will look like. So we don't want to throw engagement out. I think what we have to recognize is China, China poses some very significant challenges in a lot of areas, economic, security, human rights, 
and think about how to respond you know, sensitively, sensibly in each case, as opposed to talk about isolation and destroying the relationship. A cold war with China makes no sense when it's so integrated with the international economy. I mean, the Soviet Union never had those connections. And thankfully, we don't have the military confrontation with China, at least not yet, that we had with the Soviet Union. We worried about the Red Army pouring through the Fulda Gap in uh, you know, Germany. I mean, we had a very different set of concerns with the Soviet Union. So I think Cold War rhetoric is very harmful. But we have to recognize this is a very serious challenge. I don't see isolation as being the answer, but it's going to require a much tougher response in particular areas, trying to deal with individual problems as opposed to a broad brush approach, I think. If I could add, could I add a word on this? Yeah. I, I very much agree with what, with what Doug has just said. I mean, I think that kinds of myths have emerged about U.S. objectives in establishing normal relations with China through engagement and the failures of that general approach. Um, that approach always combined contact, cooperation, and shaping and deterrence. The proper argument is not, it seems to me, that engagement failed because China didn't become more open and liberal both domestically and at home. The proper argument is China's emergence as, as Doug says, a more capable and a competent competitor and a challenger to some longstanding U.S. interests and assumptions, as well as its vastly more increased importance as a potential collaborator, if not partner, in addressing some major transnational threats and, and opportunities, all during a period of relative U.S. decline in some critical areas. These things call for a much more complex and much more effective efforts to compete strongly where needed, to re-examine our assumptions about what best serves U.S. interests, especially in the debate over continued U.S. primacy, and overall to develop a strategy based on a genuine effort to listen to the preferences of our other countries, align them more effectively with our own, and build incentives <laughs> for more moderate within China to exert greater leverage over Chinese foreign policy. All of this requires a much better effort at matching likely available resources with ends and at developing a much greater domestic capacity to compete in a positive and an effective manner, not always by pulling China down, but by making the U.S. more attractive and more capable and by drawing others to our side, not just by demonizing China and hyping the threat it poses, but by really listening and serving the interests of others not alienating them as this administration is doing. Great, great. Thank you, uh, Doug and Mike. Um, to move on to our next question, uh, this one comes from uh, Rudy D'Alessandro. Uh, they say, I work for the U.S. National Park Service and have been coordinating assistant to uh, PRC ministries on establishing national parks in their country. Uh, do you see conservation and environment as one area for potential continued cooperation in the Sino-American relationship? I'm going to expand on that a bit and ask, uh, so Michael, you just brought up, there are some areas that require the U.S. and China uh, to cooperate. And much of the public discussion has been about areas where cooperation is no longer possible. Um, for the speakers, what are some of those essential things that that sort of demand a continued level of engagement, even if the general relationship deteriorates. Uh, something that came up a lot in an event I, I was involved in yesterday was this issue of China arms control, for example, and the administration's efforts to try and get China into uh, nuclear threat reduction. Um, so if, if each of you could uh, weigh in on what you see are the maybe one or two really key areas that might require some level of engagement going forward, even if things start to break down in other areas? And how can we do this? Or is this something that's going to require some very uh, creative thinking on both the US and Chinese side to make happen? And we can start with Bonnie. Uh, yes, you know, I think sometimes if governments move out of the way and let experts uh, uh, engage on, on issues where uh, they naturally collaborate, that's often the best way forward. Uh, but of course, there's a role for governments as well. 
and, and we have seen even during the pandemic, there hasn't been very much cooperation between our governments, a little bit between uh, the CDCs, but not, nothing like what it was in the past. But doctors on, on, on both sides, medical professionals, have continued uh, to collaborate. Uh, but we have not seen a, a, a real uh, government effort mobilized. And, and that's unfortunate because really, if we can't cooperate during a pandemic, um, not only to stop the spread and to find a vaccine, but also then to coordinate so that we can help to rebuild uh, the uh, global economy, um, then really what can we cooperate on? I mean, this seems to me to be a no brainer. Uh, so this has been unfortunate. There are issues in which China and the U.S. have cooperated in the past. I think many of our allies would like uh, Washington to return to a positive agenda with Beijing on, on uh, combating global warming uh, because climate uh, change issues are so prominent in Europe. Um, that might return here if we have a different uh, administration. And so I would certainly put that on the list. Um, overall environmental issues, uh, we have a track record of working together. Alternative energy development, for example, um, and your questioner asked about sort of na national parks, deforestation, conservation issues. These have also been areas where the U.S. and China work together. Uh, uh, we had a lot of uh, cooperation in the Obama administration on uh, uh, oceans um, and uh, how we can protect and, and preserve um, uh, some of uh, the uh, the resources uh, that that oceans uh, provide. Uh, so it, there's, it, it, there really is a, a, a long list. One could prioritize a few issues, and I think pandemics and climate change would be at the top of that list. But if you wanted to come up with an expansive list, uh, you could do that also. Um, I understand why the Trump administration is engaging with China or trying to engage with China, I should say, in the issue of participating in nuclear threat reduction. But my own view is that in this atmosphere of mistrust and, a, and this ever downward spiral in the U.S.-China relationship, that it's going to be exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, uh, to get China to engage in uh, that kind of uh, conversation. And I personally don't think it's in U.S. interest to put all arms control on hold um, until China is ready to participate. Uh, but I do think we should continue to try and engage with China on issues related to space, to cyber, uh, to nuclear weapons and policy. Um, this was attempted during um, previous administrations, uh, the Obama administration, and before it, the George W. Bush administration, and we should continue to do so. I think that clearly the pandemic is an obvious area. I think one of the problems with the administration's attempt to turn this into a political issue is that it's made that harder. And it's found that the Europeans are far more concerned right now about dealing with uh, the virus as opposed to joining in some kind of a campaign against China, even though there's a widespread agreement that there should be some kind of accounting eventually. The good news is doctors have been cooperating, but Bonnie's absolutely right having governmental cooperation on an issue like this, I think would be quite helpful. The environment, obviously, uh, you know, China is a huge emitter of carbon dioxide. It's you know, major, uh, has coal plants. I mean, and all, a whole host of environmental issues matter there. I think this is a trade. I mean, recognize it economically, even if the trade agreement falls apart, despite efforts to have at least some decoupling of supply chains, China's not going to go away. It's not going to go away from the American market, and it's certainly not going to go away from markets of American friends and allies. You look at uh, you know, trade with Japan, with South Korea, with Australia. All of these are countries that take that into account when they think of policy towards China. The U.S. should too. Trade is beneficial, I would argue. There are particular economic issues to deal with, but this is going to be a continuing issue one can look at a little further afield issues, for example, of uh, peacekeeping, potentially, it gets a little more complicated to what extent you want China involved militarily. Nevertheless, it has capabilities that are lacking in so many other countries to participate. Uh, air and sea rescue and, uh, you know, an area that's very heavily trafficked uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the maritime uh, transit. Uh, even simple things like culture and sports are areas where China is growing very important 
and the question of how you work with them, it strikes me these are areas of mutual advantage that we should not throw away. And over the long term, one of our best hopes, I think, is trying to influence the Chinese people. And they're much more likely to be influenced by these kinds of activities than American political initiatives. They're much more likely to be influenced by Americans as opposed to the American government. I mean, I've spoken at universities there that Chinese students are always enjoy engaging. They're nationalistic. We should have no illusions. Nevertheless, I think this is an area that's fruitful for the future. Isolation is no answer in a case like this. If I could just add, I, mean, I, I don't have a lot more to say. I think I, I agree very much with what both Bonnie and, and Doug have just said. I think there are a lot of areas where we not only can, but we must develop a way for engaging with and cooperating with the Chinese. We don't have to be friends. We don't have to be uh, partners in the sense that we're partners with our allies. Um, but we do need to be able to work together effectively and without a lot of rhetoric and without a lot of extremist um, polemical posturing that goes on on both sides, especially on the U.S. side, in my view. But I think there's also, I mean, there's a strong need, given the risks and the dangers that are involved in this continually deteriorating relationship, we need to get serious about dealing with crises and about being able to develop, develop effective ways of managing possible crises that can occur between the United States and China, particularly in the Western Pacific. Uh, that region is absolutely critical to both countries, as we all know, and in many ways critical to the world. And nature, its power structure, economically, militarily, and to some extent politically, has shifted, has changed. It is moving more towards a kind of rough balance of power between the United States and China, and it's not terribly stable. It's prone to greater crises um, by each side testing the other side's resolve or limits on particular issues that could provoke co conflict between the two of them, beginning with Taiwan. And there needs to be more explicit, more deliberate efforts made on a track two basis and then on a track one basis to develop greater understanding about how you avert crises. And if you're in a crisis, how you avoid inadvertent escalation and you're able to de-escalate a crisis. Because I don't think either country is at the point where it believes that a crisis in the Western Pacific or anywhere else will serve its it will serve its interests and that it has an interest in taking advantage of a crisis because it's confident it can win the crisis and come out on top. Uh, neither side has a strong interest in trying to play that game. I've been involved for many years in a project with a colleague in the United States and with a Chinese counterpart in trying to deal with this problem of crisis <coughs> management with US government support in the past, and I think we need to strengthen this kind of effort in the future. And as I say, be able to link the track two with the track one efforts. It's not easy given the deepening suspicions on both sides, but I think it's gonna be increasingly important uh, as this relation continues to become more and more challenging. All right, thank you very much. Um, so for the next question, and Michael, this is going to build off that point you had near the end about crisis management because um, as someone on the uh, chat noted, and I apologize uh, that I lost the name on it, um, there is currently a standoff uh, between India and China about their disputed border. Um, I also wanted to, to sort of widen the aperture on this to try and address a few other questions that uh, folks have been submitting both through social media and through Slido about how do third countries uh, factor in? So not the US or China, but states like North Korea, states in the Middle East and Africa, um, what happens to them as a result of a worsening US-China relationship? And what is their outlook likely to be? Are they likely to try and resist some of the more competitive aspects? Will they uh, sort of accept that things are becoming or going towards more of a zero-sum type relationship and go with either the US or China? Very curious to hear, and many of the audience is very curious to hear uh, your thoughts on the role of these other countries than the U.S. and China that will undoubtedly uh, be affected if their relationship worsens. Um, and for this, we can uh, we can sort of do reverse order. Uh, start with Michael. Oh, okay. 
Well, I think how other countries look at the U.S.-China relationship depends very much on the countries you're talking about. Um, I think American allies um, are frankly very concerned about the way the U.S.-China relationship has deteriorated so rapidly, uh, the way in which the narrative and the dialogue between the two sides has become so extreme and so zero-sum in, in, in many ways. Um, I think there's a hesitant, there's a concern, there's always been a strong concern about how China will use its growing power and influence uh, to affect their own interests. Um, there, but at the same time, there's a growing concern now that the United States itself, through its behavior, is indeed um, threatening their interests as well by obstructing their ability to be able to deal with China on the terms that they think are most effective by potentially dragging them into a confrontation with China that they don't want, um, and by really narrowing their options. Um, they would like to try to have good relations with both the United States and China. Allies, of course, want to remain strong allies, supportive of and uh, cooperative with the United States, but they don't want to allow themselves, they don't want to be dragged into a situation where they really have to present uh, a kind of posture to China that will just increase the level of pressure uh, on themselves and to, to an uncertain end. Uh, so I think there's growing concern about this and it's, it's not, it's in South Korea for sure. Uh, it's also in Japan. I would say it's in some European allies as well. And when I talk to them, um, I try to encourage them to become more uh, independent in some ways, to stand up for their interests to express their concerns about this zero-sum nature of the competition that's going on uh, and to try to support and develop a more moderate uh, balanced position on the part of the uh, U.S. government. I don't think this is likely under, current, under the current administration, but it could be done under the next administration if it's a democratic one. Um, as far as other countries are concerned, it, it depends very much on the countries you're talking about. Uh, I think North Korea is a country that tries to use its contacts with both sides and play them against each other to a certain extent in ways that don't serve the interests of either the United States or China. Uh, but North Korea has a somewhat unique position, both geographically and politically and strategically, in relation to both the United States and to China, that give it more leverage than it would otherwise have. And so it has, I think, tried to play the two countries against each other in various ways that has been to some degree effective, I think, over time, and particularly with this U.S. president, who seems to think he's a good friend of the leader of North Korea. Um, other countries in the Middle East are a somewhat different story. Uh, depends on how strongly they are allied to or opposed to the United States or China. Iran is a country that I think very much wants to um, improve its relations with China to the extent possible. Uh, it wants to be able to use the disarray in the United States and in ways that diminish U.S. influence in the Middle East. Uh, it wants to get the Chinese more supportive of its efforts, but the Chinese are cautious on this front. They do not want to get dragged fully into uh, Middle Eastern politics as opposed to the more economic dimensions of uh, their needs in the Middle East. So there's a certain amount of resistance to that. Um, it varies. I mean, it would take a lot more time to go around the horn and, and cover the different regions here and maybe <laughs> others have. So I'll just be brief as I know we are uh, running out of time and I agree with Michael, you really have to get into a granular analysis of which country. Uh, there are some countries that welcome the United States being tougher on, on China. They welcome the assessment of uh, the dangers that China poses to their security. And if you look in the South China Sea, for example, the Trump administration has not only been conducting freedom of navigation operations, but is calling for uh, China to stop bullying uh, countries as they try to exploit resources inside their uh, 200 nautical uh, mile exclusive economic zones. Uh, this was not a position that the Obama administration took. And so countries like Vietnam welcome that, but they also see the United States as unpredictable. They don't want a US-China war in their backyard. So there are those factors as well. Uh, most yeah. countries want room to maneuver. 
between the United States and China. They want the freedom to make their own choices. Many countries want to benefit economically from their ties uh, with China. Countries get loans, you know, through the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. They want continued access to that. Now, if China's economy uh, really radically slows down, that might be um, the loss of some leverage that China has over those countries. Uh, but there are many countries in Africa, for example, who uh, want good ties with China now so that they can um, perhaps delay repayment of the loans that they have, uh, that they've taken. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, there are different trends in different places in the world, but countries that look at this competition between the U.S. and China do fear uh, confrontation and uh, competition getting out of hand, um, escalating. And uh, certainly no country wants to see a U.S.-China war. Uh, very few think that there would be benefits from decoupling. Uh, so they don't want to see that either. Uh, they want to see the U.S. and China manage their differences. But many support a tougher Trump administration approach to try and get China to change some of its objectionable policies. I think that Bonnie and Michael have covered this well, that there are several streams that are going on simultaneously. One is the rising economic role of China. I mean, a country like South Korea trades more with China than it trades with the U.S. and Japan combined. Uh, this matters a lot. I mean, a country like Australia that's very, very pro-American. I spent February there in residence. I mean, you know, these are folks who work very closely with the U.S. in different conflicts, et cetera. Nevertheless, until now, anyway, with the, the coronavirus, I mean, Chinese students come, tourists, and economic uh, you know, coordination and commerce. You know, so what you see is that's very strong with countries. On the other hand, security is pushing countries the other way. I mean, Japan has started doing a little more internationally. A large part of that is both China and North Korea. You look at, uh, you know, the Philippines recognized Duterte is as kind of inconsistent as Trump. Nevertheless, he recently argued the U.S. fleet should show up after the Chinese sank a fishing boat for the Philippines. You see countries like Vietnam and Indonesia. You, know, you see uh, India participating uh, you know, in terms of naval maneuvers. You know, that you're a lot of concern there on the security side and human rights matters as well, especially for among a lot of Europeans in terms of the Uyghurs, in terms of the general crackdown on free expression. So all of these are swirling around where countries, many of them like a tougher U.S. attitude, very few of them want to have to choose. And essentially none of them wants to be drawn into a war. They certainly don't want to become a battleground you know, between the U.S. and China. So they have very, very mixed senses, but they'd like to have the U.S. around. They just prefer to have a little less inconsistency and a little more predictability than they're getting out of the current administration. Right, great. Um, so we only have about eight or seven minutes left in our time here. So I'm going to ask one final uh, question for everyone to address. Um, usually in presidential election years, domestic issues tend to take precedence over foreign policy, um, much to, I think, the chagrin sometimes of people like me who really like foreign policy. Uh, I'm Based off of what we're seeing, though, so far in terms of uh, both how Trump is talking about China and how the Biden uh, campaign has been uh, introducing uh, China into some of its campaign materials and advertisements. It seems like this is going to not be the case this year and that China and U.S. policy towards it is going to factor very heavily. Um, specifically, both sides seem to be positioning themselves to try and be who can be tougher on China. Um, how do you all see the China issue playing into the 2020 election. And if it is go, if it does turn out to be something where both sides are trying to sort of out tough the other, will that constrain America's policies for the next administration, whether that be a Biden administration or a Trump or a second term of a Trump administration in terms of what policies we pursue and enact in regards to China? And Doug, you can uh, start us off. 
Well, this is going to be a major campaign issue. The Trump administration telegraphed this pretty clearly in terms of speaking even with reporters. The uh, Senate Republicans basically told their candidates, don't defend the administration, attack China. I think what's to recognize is this is an international issue being used in a domestic sense. That is, it won't be a debate about, you know, how should the United States respond to a particular issue in the South China Sea? It's tied in with uh, the coronavirus. It's tied in with the president's uh, competence or lack thereof in dealing with it. You know, the Chinese are used to becoming an issue. Back in 2012, you know, President Obama and Mitt Romney ran competing ads in Ohio. And really, I think it was only Ohio because of the heavy trade emphasis, denouncing the other for being soft on trade with China. I think what's more worrying is that both sides are likely to be a race to the bottom. The Biden folks have tried to insulate themselves. They've pointed out the president said a lot of nice things about Xi Jinping. You know, they've tried to argue that he's the one who's really pro-China, that that's why he didn't do a good job with the coronavirus. So the question is, how bad does it go in terms of the race to the bottom? And I think, Eric, you're right. To what extent does this constrain them, not only because they've made commitments that they feel it's hard to back away from, but to what extent do they inflame public opinion? The latest polling shows Americans have turned sharply negative towards China. A campaign where both major candidates are attacking China is likely to drive that further down. That may make it much harder for whoever wins to try to make any kind of pivot away from the toughest proposals they were making in the campaign. I completely agree what, uh, with what Doug has said. Uh, American attitudes are partly turning sh uh, more negative toward China because of what the president and secretary of state Pompeo and others have said about China. <clears throat> and then that uh, negative American opinion um, <coughs> is, is, is seen as something that both President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden can use in order to win votes so that Trump could get reelected or Biden uh, can get elected in November. And so both camps uh, have already identified China as an issue on which the other one is potentially vulnerable and they want to position themselves as being uh, tough on China. They think this is important to Americans and it will help them get uh, elected. So this is going to drive American opinion in, a, in an even, even more negative uh, direction. Uh, it, it might be possible um, if we have a change in administration uh, to have somewhat of a adjustment in China policy, but I don't think it's going to be very fundamental. Um, I personally hope that it would be more in uh, coordination with our allies and partners around the world, not unilateral. Um, I don't think that uh, policy should be made by tweet. Uh, I, I'd, I'd like to see uh, a, uh, a more structured decision-making process in, uh, in the U.S. government, particularly a stronger interagency process, and that could return uh, under Biden. And if Trump gets reelected, it is possible that he says, well, all this stuff that I said was really just for the campaign. Xi Jinping is my best friend. I'm just reminding you all of that. And uh, let's, uh, you know, get our, our uh, teams together and engage on uh, negotiating a phase two uh, trade deal. Uh, which I think would his priority would still be trade over uh, over other issues. So um, not a fundamental uh, shift, but there is still potential uh, for the relationship to stabilize after the election. Uh, but my caveat there is it does prevent on how far it falls between now uh, between now and and the election. I know we're almost out of time. I mean, I just had a couple of words. I, I really basically agree with what Doug and Bonnie have said. I think we have to keep in mind campaigns are campaigns. They're not policy uh, debates. Um, a lot of this has got to do with posturing for political effect. The extreme views, I think, are deliberate to try to generate support on different sides. But ultimately, the issues that face the United States are not caused by China. And I think uh, people, at least in the Democratic, in the Biden camp, I think they understand this, but they understand that, th so they understand that there needs to be a strategy towards China that can, yes, uh, effectively deal with those areas where China does threaten U.S. interests, that does challenge the United States, but also in a much more realistic, much more balanced, much more resource-oriented, and much more ally-oriented way, 
develop a more effective way of being able to engage with China and be able to get China's support in doing things that we need to have, that we absolutely need to have done uh, without continuing this downward, never-ending, sort of open-ended freefall in relations, which I think is really the result of what's been going on under the Trump administration and under the Xi Jinping government. I do think there's a possibility that a democratic administration could establish a more stable policy towards China, but it has to be a policy that's based on more than just, we know how to do toughness better. It has to be a policy that is based on a real recognition of the different equities that we have in dealing with China and our allies and our friends in ways that can encourage cooperation by the Chinese and encourage the more moderate elements within China, which I do believe exist, that can over time become more influential in their own policies and in influencing the US-China relationship. We need a much more sophisticated policy. We're not getting it from the current administration. Hopefully we'll see elements of it in the uh, in a Biden administration. All right, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, we are out of time for today's session. So thank you all very much to the presenters for coming on today and, and having this really good back and forth about so many good questions. Uh, thank you to everyone watching at home uh, for joining us today. Uh, we had a lot of really good questions come in from various different platforms over the course of the event. Um, I apologize that I could not address everyone's specific question, but I hope that the uh, discussion gave you a lot to think about and a lot to consider. Um, the full video of this recording is going to be posted on the Cato website later today, and you can find it here if you'd like to share it with anyone or rewatch it. Um, thank you all so much for joining us and have a great day.